morning. Uh, I've only preached one other sermon in front of this community, and it was one year ago, and it also had to do with joy. So I don't know what's being like, what the message is from God to me, um, but hopefully I figure it out at some point uh, in this sermon. Um, Two years ago, 2020, I pull into my driveway after a long day of work. I was working as an assistant in a science classroom, and I get done, go home, and uh, of course, instead of walking into my house, I sat there in the driveway for a few minutes and scrolled through my phone. And one of the things I found uh, was a news article from Facebook that said, hey, tonight from 5 to 6.15 p.m., you can see the planet Jupiter and Saturn super close together. In fact, this hasn't happened in 430 years. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. You know what I mean? So I, I go inside. I actually want to put a picture up on the screen of kind of the, the night sky from, from two years ago. So essentially, uh, Saturn and Jupiter got so close together that from our distance, it looks like this really, really big star. So I go inside, put my bag down, and I immediately go outside um, and try and find it, uh, figure out the sun's kind of coming down, figure out where it's at. I can see it through the trees. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I'm like, filled with this excitement and this joy, and I just keep staring at it, and uh, eventually I get to the point where I'm like, I want more of this. I'm not satisfied with just my eyeballs. I need a telescope, and I don't own a telescope, okay? So um, immediately I'm like, you know what? The science classroom that I work in has a couple telescopes. So I get back in my car. I drive back to work. I grab two, I borrow two telescopes. I've never given them back because I broke, I broke both of them. Uh, so I don't think anyone's going to tell me. Okay, but so I, I get the telescopes. I'm driving back. At this point, it's probably, I, I pull into the driveway at six. And again, I can only see this this for another 15 minutes. So I, I go set up the telescopes, and when I watch movies, it seems like a pretty easy process. You know, like you set up the telescope, you look through it, and boom, like you see stuff. Nope. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of parts to telescopes, and I don't know how any of them work. And 15 minutes is not long enough to read the instructions. So uh I broke both of them and uh, consigned myself to the fact that I, I maybe could have enjoyed this longer if I had just kind of rested in what I originally had been given, which was just my, my two eyes. Um, this morning, we are going to uh, talk about uh, another star in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have uh, the scriptures with you, uh, why don't you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I have a gigantic New Living Translation from my grandpa today. It is so heavy, um, but I'm also pumped about it. Uh, so I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, 
And uh, I'm going to have it up on the screen, but you'll notice that I'm going to skip a few verses there in the middle. It just gets to be too long, okay? And nobody wants to hear me read for two minutes straight, all right? So uh, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now skipping down to verse 7. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the word of the Lord. So I sit down on Monday on my laptop and Google, who are the wise men? And now listen, I've got a couple theology degrees, so I already have somewhat of an idea, but I want to know what the internet says, okay? And uh, I scroll for about 30 minutes, I read probably 10 articles, and um, the internet doesn't know, okay? The internet doesn't know. They have some ideas, but they don't really know, okay? So I figured the best place to start when I ask this question, like, who are the wise men? Probably just need to start with what the text tells us. The problem is it doesn't tell us a whole lot, okay? First thing we know, it says that they're wise men from the east, okay? From the east. Now, for all of you geographically uh, challenged people, okay, let's all look at the same imaginary map, okay? My hand is Africa, and then right over here is Israel, and then this is the east, yeah? So that includes Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, I mean, even as far as India, China. Back in those days, um, the east could be Babylon, could be uh, the Persian kingdom, but all the text tells us is they're from the east. So where in the east? We don't know. Interestingly enough, because we know they're from somewhere else, the wise men are actually the only Gentiles who come to worship Jesus in the nativity story. I thought that was an interesting uh, little piece that the internet did have um, to teach me. Uh, first thing we know is they're from the East. Second thing, they seem to, like myself, have an affinity with stars, okay? It seems like their entire job is to look up at space and kind of read the stars, figure out what they're doing. Now, um, back then, uh, they didn't even have the luxury of telescopes. So 
Um, if they if they did have telescopes, they probably wouldn't break them. But uh, they didn't even have them. So to to be someone uh, who spends their career looking up at the stars back then, number one, you got to be pretty dang intelligent because you have to map the stars. Um, and number two, <laughs> surely you think there is some kind of purpose to mapping these stars as if the, the stars have something to tell you um, about the world, creation, even something like general purpose, where the world is moving. Um, are they astronomers, people that study the stars? Are they astrologers, people that like read horoscopes and stuff? Um, and I feel like I should stop there for a second. Um, I don't want to offend any of you. I probably will, but I don't want to. Um, horoscopes aren't real. <sighs> your, your life, uh, the way your week is about to go has nothing to do with the month you were born in. I promise. Like pinky promise. It doesn't. Okay. So if, if that's you, don't want to make you feel bad. Um, but I would just challenge you that maybe your purpose has more to do with who Jesus is rather than the fact you're a Scorpio. Okay. So just, Let's all get on the same page. Uh, regardless, these seemed to be men of science, okay, who care about the stars. Third thing we know from the text, somehow these Gentiles, non-Hebrew people, know about this prophecy about the king of the Jews. I don't know how that happened. But somehow they know that around this time, the king of the Jews is going to appear. Are they believers? Did somehow they interact with the Hebrew people at one point uh, and learn this narrative, learn this story? I don't know, but I tell you what, not only do they know the prophecy, but they connect this star that they see with the prophecy, and then they're willing to travel hundreds of miles, probably either on foot, donkey, or camel, to find this king of the Jews. The crazy thing is, they show up to town, and they tell people, and the Jews themselves are not even excited to go find it. So imagine the, the fervor, the drive that it takes to leave everything and travel this long way to go find this king of the Jews. They clearly know that the Messiah, this Jesus character, is worth giving up everything, giving everything away. Last thing we know from the text itself, it actually doesn't tell us how many wise men there are. Everyone thinks there's three. And the reason that three became a thing is because there's three gifts. They give the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And so we're like, oh, one, two, three. There's got to be three of them. That makes sense. Uh, it, could be, it could be three. could be four. could be five, six. I mean, I could go on. Uh, it could be 12 to 15. We don't really know, okay? But these wise men came as a group and uh, gave these gifts to the Lord. And so now I'm at the end of kind of what the text has to tell me. And so now I start digging around, what does history or like Christian tradition have to say about these wise men? And um, 
tradition has run wild with speculation about who these wise men are. In the 700s, somebody gave them names. It's like Melchior and Balthazar and something else. In the paintings from this, this time period, they're all like different ethnicities. Uh, like one of them is clearly from Africa. One of them is from China. And one of them is from somewhere in the Middle East. Again, we don't know from the text, but tradition has been really intrigued with this question, who are the wise men? Uh, I started then to look back through the rest of Scripture because actually that, that title, wise men, is elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, it's really used a lot in the book of Daniel. So we, we studied Daniel right before this Advent series. We talked about how the Israelites get sent off to Babylon to be captives. And one of the phrases that gets used a lot in that book is that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to ask his wise men for advice. It's used several times and almost every time it's connected to science. And so certainly could, could the wise men in Matthew be connected to those wise men in Babylon? Maybe. But we don't really know. We're left with a lot of questions. And I think for me, when I read the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is a very detailed person. He likes to give you little details. And so if he does not give me details about who the wise men are, maybe it's on purpose. Maybe digging around isn't the best thing to spend your time on. Maybe he's trying to draw our attention to something else. When I read the text this week, uh, besides the, the fact that it's Jesus and our attention should be on Jesus uh, and that he is the hero of this story, there's a phrase in verse 10 Matthew 2, verse 10, I believe it's verse 10, where it says that when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And so my question now is beginning to change. It's no longer who are the wise men, but rather, how do I get that joy? They saw the star and they were filled with joy. How do we receive joy or rather, how do we position ourselves to receive that kind of joy? Now, over the past several years, um, there's been two themes from Advent, love and joy, that get spoken a lot about in Christian circles um, as things that must be chosen, okay? Even when you don't feel like it, you got to choose joy. Anybody ever heard that? Uh, even when you don't feel like it, you got to choose love. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, those things are true. I'm not, I'm not dogging those at all. But this text, if I'm taking it at face value, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Uh, that word filled gives me a visual of some kind of externality, external force pouring in. 
They were filled with joy. It wasn't just something that they chose or conjured up in and of themselves. Something outside of them poured them, filled them with joy. Uh, And that kind of struck me because if that kind of joy has to be filled from the outside, (laughs) what do I need to do to get that joy? What do I need to, to do? Where do I need to be? What position do I need to be in to receive that kind of joy? If you've been with us the past few weeks, um, we have been walking through uh, the nativity story in a unique way, and you might not even have caught it. Uh, We've been talking about our themes for our candles, but we've also been connecting characters from the nativity story to Old Testament characters in Jesus's lineage, people that are related to Jesus. So, If you remember the first week, Pastor Spencer spoke and he talked about Mary from the Nativity Story and Rahab. Uh, The second week, Pastor Jordan talked about uh, Joseph and connected him to King David and the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Last week, Dr. D, y'all like Dr. D? I love Dr. D. She makes me excited. Uh, Dr. D uh, talked about King Herod, this evil king in the nativity story, with two evil kings that are in Jesus' own lineage, Rehoboam and Uzziah. And uh, this week, it has been tasked upon me to connect the wise men with some character from Jesus' lineage. So I spent a lot of time this week digging through Matthew 1 and reading all these names, and I built this whole chart, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, wise men, wise men. Oh, you know, Solomon. If you know the scriptures at all, you know that Solomon is like the wisest king that ever lived. That seems like a no-brainer, so I spend however long digging through Solomon's story and trying to figure out, how, how can these connect? And, and then I kind of got bored, and so I moved on and, and looked at Jacob, Jacob, the son of Isaac, and uh, started digging into his story and how he uh, married his two wives and just the story of uh, some of the wisdom he had in that. And then I got bored, and I moved on to um, this classic character that all, all of you know, and when I say it, you're going to be like, duh, should have picked that one. It's this guy named Zerubbabel, right? Uh, Zerubbabel, uh, Zerubbabel. I don't know how to say his name. Either one works for me, um, but I'm sure you know everything about him. Uh, he is in the lineage of Christ, and I stumbled across him when I was reading uh, the story uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, There's only a couple chapters in the Old Testament that reference this guy named Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. And I want to kind of set up the scene that he enters in. So we talked about Daniel in that series, right? So the Israelites are living their life. They're doing awesome. 
The problem is they keep sinning and turning their back on God. And so God's like, listen, I'm going to hand you over to your, your sin. He lets the Babylonians come in, destroy Jerusalem, takes all the Israelites back to Babylon. They're in captivity. Well, a couple generations go by. They're in captivity. None of the Jews have been back to Israel. A couple kings later, Babylonian kings, this one king decides, King Darius, he says, you know what? I want to have a province in Israel. So I want to set up a community in Israel, but they're still a part of my kingdom. And so he actually allows 50,000 Israelites to leave Babylon for the first time and go back to Israel, specifically to Jerusalem. Who do you think led that 50,000 people? Zerubbabel. Yep, that's the one. So uh, I start digging into his story because this this fascinates me. Um, the, The Jews have longed to return. And these 50,000 Jews are the first ones who get to go back to their homeland, the Holy Land, the place of their fathers. And so I want us to look uh, for a moment in Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to give you some time to find Ezra 3. It is right before the book of Nehemiah. It is a very short book. Um, I would highly recommend uh, you use, what's that called? The Table of Contents. Um, I can't even remember if I put it up on the screen. Grace, did I put that? Yeah, I didn't do that. So that's my fault, okay? Uh, if you don't want to turn there, totally fine. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we would love to give you a Bible for free. Come talk to me afterward if you would like to get a Bible. Uh, it's only three verses that I'm going to read to you, okay? Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Um, before, Before I get to that, I want you to step into their shoes for a second. They're traveling back to Jerusalem for the first time. It's a long journey, 50,000 people. I imagine there's a lot of anticipation maybe even fear about what they're about to encounter. Because uh, this is what Jerusalem looked like before the Babylonian captivity, okay? Beautiful. The place, the seat of God's presence on earth, the city of Jerusalem. So the, the Hebrews that are old enough that they actually grew up here before they were taken into captivity, this is what's in their mind. The problem is, when the Babylonians came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, and it looked like this. Burned it to the ground. Destroyed the walls, the gates, the homes, the roads, the temple. I mean, decimated this place. And so I tried to step into Zerubbabel's shoes for a second. He knows that he's leading these people back to set up a, uh, a settlement in Jerusalem. And you got to think that on that journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, 
he's trying to decide what should we work on first? Our city's been destroyed. Where do we start? Do you start on housing because you're about to have 50,000 people need shelter? Do you start on the roads so that we can get back and forth and communicate? Um, God, the obvious one, do you start on the walls? No walls, okay? I like my houses with walls, okay? I think that's probably the most important part of the house, having walls. Uh, there's no walls to protect them from the enemies. He doesn't start there. He starts somewhere else. I want to pick up in Ezra 3, verse 10. This is the first thing that they worked on. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets, and the Levites, the descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David has had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Listen to this part. But many of the older priests, Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple, wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The, the others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. I mean, this is the temple of David and Solomon. And the older men remember it. <laughs> in all of its glory and its beauty. The younger men in this text weren't even born in Israel. They were born in Babylon. All they've known of the temple, all they've known of Jerusalem is the stories they've heard. And so when they build this foundation, it is a moment of great joy for them. We are doing something, moving our people forward in a way that we've only heard of. And the old men, um, I think their their weeping, their grieving is still joyful. It's that bittersweet moment when uh, you recognize that something old has officially passed away so that new life can give birth. And as, as beautiful, as capturing as that scene is, I still have that question like why why did they start with the temple of all the things to start working on I, I think the most logical thing is the walls and yet somewhere between Babylon and Jerusalem somewhere on that road Zerubbabel maybe with his the time he has decides to work on the temple why? And when I ask that 
question, something finally clicked with me. And I, I thought back to the wise men who travel all this distance and they see the star and they're filled with joy. And then I come back to Zerubbabel's scene and these men who build this foundation for the temple of God and they're filled with this joy. How do we get filled with joy? How do we position ourselves uh, to receive this joy? What if the answer has been lying under our nose the whole time? We're talking about the wise men. What if it's wisdom? What if wisdom is the secret ingredient to positioning yourself to receive joy? Think about Zerubbabel. Again, the logical choice is to build the walls, but somewhere on that road, he is struck by the wisdom that actually we should start with the temple because this is the core of our people's story. And all of these young men don't even know. So if we start with this temple, we start with the house of God, the thing that connects us as a people, maybe that will kickstart a new chapter in our people's history. And we can build a city together that is founded upon the same thing that our grandfathers built all those years ago. He starts with the temple. Think about the, the wisdom of the wise men. You know, again, they saw a star, and that star struck a chord with them. They said, oh, you know what? I bet that has to do with this prophecy about this people group that we're not even a part of. I mean, that doesn't just take knowledge. It takes wisdom. The wisdom to travel all that way because not only do they know the story, but they expect to find what they found. So here's my, my question today. What if receiving joy is about having the wisdom to know which star to follow? What if receiving joy is about having the wisdom to know which star to follow? Because you and I, every day, have a lot of choices to make. And even just in the bigger things of life, you have a lot of choices about your career, what you're going to do for work. You have a lot of choices about your relationships, who you're going to invest in, who you're not going to invest in. You have choices about how you're going to spend your time, where you're going to live, how you're going to spend your money. All of those choices are like stars in the sky. And certain ones, the Lord has prepared ahead of time to lead you to Bethlehem to be filled with joy. If only we would have the wisdom to receive it. And so my challenge to you, the, the thing I want to leave you with, uh, if you're anything like me, I, I often ask God for joy. God, help me. I hate this right now. Help me to have joy. God, I don't want to be here doing this. Help me to have joy. God, I wish that 
If only this, God help me to have joy. Help me not to, just help me to have joy. And I don't think God is is upset with that, but I want to maybe change our language as a community. Maybe for just this month, instead of asking God for joy, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom that when he finally puts that star in the sky that he knows is going to give you joy, you can see it and you can follow it. This morning, we have the collective joy to respond in a couple ways uh, to the word. Uh, The first is we are going to dedicate some kiddos, some little ones to the Lord from our community. And I, baby dedications are like one of my favorite thing, y'all. Like the kids are, the kids are cute. They're often pretty rambunctious up here. They don't like to like hold still for very long. I love it. I do think that, uh, and I want you to catch this, we are in a unique season where we are celebrating a story that centers around a kid, a baby. That the nativity story essentially tells us that God is most accessible in this season through a child. And so this morning, I hope that we can join collectively in that joy as we dedicate some kiddos. And then after we do that, I want us to continue in this um, thing we've been doing for the last few weeks where we're just going to leave some space in here. We're going to dedicate these kids, and then I'm going to come back up. And if you feel like God is tugging on you, you want to you want to pray for that wisdom, you want to confess some sin, you want to talk to God about something, later on we're going to have some some prayer team people up here to pray with you, and we're just going to leave this space, we're going to turn on some music, we're going to to let you uh, leave if you want to, we're going to close those doors, and then if you need to stay and pray and ask God for that wisdom, you can. But this morning, the first thing I want us to do is to collectively be filled with joy.